Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member. For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details. Welcome back to the Reading and Writing Podcast. My guest today is Ryan Douglas, author of the novel, The Taking of Jake Livingston. Ryan, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. Really appreciate it. Sure. Well, if someone hasn't yet heard about your new novel, The Taking of Jake Livingston, how would you describe the novel? Um, the Taking of Jake Livingston is a YA horror about a teen medium who is haunted by the ghost of a school shooter. And he is kind of forced to come to grips with his powers, which he kind of has seen as a curse his whole life. But when this spirit tries to invade his body, he has to um, draw on his powers to banish it. Um, I don't want to give too much away, but essentially he's coming to terms with his voice and that has a connection to his powers as a medium. And it's kind of a coming of age story wrapped up in a horror novel. Well, do you remember the original idea or impetus that led you to write the taking of Jake Livingston? Um, it was really a combo of things. I kind of grew up on horror and ghost stories, and I knew that that was what I wanted to do when I was experimenting in college with uh, different genres. Um, I liked the freedom that the horror genre gave me to kind of go toward trauma and um, explore the things that I had dealt with growing up. So um, I knew I wanted to do it in that genre, and I had always been really intrigued by psychological horror and stories about killers, serial killers. Um, so I wanted to look at that and wanted to look at what turned someone to violence, um, you know, school shootings and racism and homophobia and other themes that the book deals with were really heavy on the cultural consciousness when I first started. So I wanted to deal with the things that felt really important um, to society. So just layering those things over each other is kind of what gradually brought the idea to my mind. And what was your writing journey that led you to writing and getting your first novel published? Um, so it was really just something that I got into because I wasn't a very vocal child. Um, I didn't have a lot of friends growing up and I was looking for outlets to express myself. So I didn't really have writers in the family, um, didn't really have a lot of creative people in my family. So it was really just something that I turned to uh, as kind of a mode of healing. And um, when I started to, I realized that um, I was doing it so much that it would make sense to try to get it published or at least see if I was good enough to get it published. So I started looking at agents and spent maybe 10 years trying to find the right person, trying to get a book that was publishable and ready to debut with. So um, I found my agent back in, I guess it was 2017, and then we sold the book the year after that. 
So you mentioned this uh, 10-year journey. Were you working on other novels during that time, or were you rewriting and revising this one novel? Yeah. Um, so I didn't start the Taking of Jake Livingston until um, my, I guess it was my junior, sophomore or junior year of college, which was a while ago, like six years ago. Um and before that, I was working on other projects. I was working on um, some fantasy, some sci-fi, kind of just trying to find my genre. And I think this is true for a lot of writers, but at the beginning, the projects that I was writing were almost carbon copies of the books that I had read growing up. So I was kind of doing my version of Harry Potter, my version of Percy Jackson. And the feedback that I was getting from agents was that it was derivative and, um, <laughs> you know, there was other, there were other things out there like it. So I think coming terms with my own personal style and what I wanted to put into the market was a big part of finally getting past that gate where I could get an agent and, um, they felt like the book could stand on its own merit and that it was something new. And I'm curious what helped you, because I think you're right. I think there are a lot of people who, when they first start writing, um, end up writing a lot of derivative work. What helped you to kind of get out of that and to find your own? Um, I think just being uh, willing enough, being brave enough to be honest in my writing. Uh, I think when it comes to honesty or like bearing your soul on the page, it feels like there are going to be so many consequences, you know, especially if you're pulling from your real life. What if character, what if people in your life, um, see themselves in your characters, you know, what's going to happen then. And I think there was a moment where I just decided that the craft and my responsibility as a writer to bring stories that felt true um, to the market was bigger than what I would have to deal with on a personal level. So I really took that step to commit to the craft um, against pretty much everything else in my life. And I think being a writer is about making a lot of sacrifices in that way. Um, even when you're like dividing your time, just kind of devoting yourself that much. So I, it was very much a conscious choice not to sort of hide in my writing and make it as honest as possible. And what books or authors inspired you during this time as you were, as you were trying to find your path to, to your kind of voice on the page? Um, I think so when I was a kid, you know, the writers who some of whom are still writing, um, children's books today, Rick Riordan, uh, his books were coming out, Percy Jackson and the Kane Chronicles. Uh, those really inspired me to kind of put like everyday kid characters on the page because Percy is not like a super smart guy or, you know, he doesn't come off as super extraordinary. He has mental disabilities, you know, um, learning disabilities and that really pushed me to thinking about um, the fact that you don't have to have like this chosen one who has everything together and you can 
put a character on the page that doesn't always feel as um, special, you know? And I think that contributes to the um, sense that like people have when they're reading it, that you don't have to be extraordinary to see yourself as a hero. Um, And as an adult, I started reading more adult books and I found in adult books that they were, um, they don't have to pull as many punches. And I definitely wanted to push boundaries in YA. So reading adult books, reading the work of Chuck Palahniuk, um, his work was just very honest. I read Octavia Butler and I just loved how direct her writing style was. It didn't feel like it was trying too hard. Um, it kind of taught me to get to the point and get to the truth of things. And um, of course, in YA, in recent, like, when I was um, shopping Jake around, The Hate You Give was coming out. Adam Silvera had just come out. And those stories that dealt with identity were also really important for me to put those aspects on the page. So it all kind of came together through those authors. Great. And what was your writing process when you were working on the taking of Jake Livingston? Did you outline the novel extensively before you began began writing, or did you just dive into the narrative? Mm-hmm. So it started out as a short story, because um, I was just kind of experimenting with the concept of a boy being followed by a ghost at school um, and seeing what that would look like. And then I actually um, shopped it around in my workshop in college, and someone said I should turn it into a full book. So I just kind of started to think about how I could uh, sustain that narrative. I did outlining of the major plot points. um, And I knew that with this book, I wanted to go further than I ever had gone. And I wanted every scene to be intense (laughs) Um, (laughs) because I felt like I wanted, I wanted the reader to feel like they weren't wasting their time. I wanted there to be substance in every page. So I kind of outlined it in a loose way, I guess, and had a vague sense of the ending, but it was definitely more of a free writing experience because I was at that place where I was thinking, okay, now is the time to go balls to the wall and just do what you want because there was nothing else to lose at that point. Like I had written three other books that were trying to be other things and nobody wanted them. So I just really decided to do what I wanted to do. And a lot of that process did involve kind of just pantsing the narrative and going for it. Sure. Well, are you working on a new novel now? Yes, I'm currently working on another YA that's kind of in the same vein. Um, dark academia with supernatural elements. Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you, with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. And given your experience and what you've talked about in terms of your journey and working on, you know, these earlier books that you, you said 
you know, were derivative and you had to kind of find your own voice. What writing advice would you offer for those who are working on their own stories and novels? Mm, I definitely think that it's important to write the things that haunt you at night, <laughs> um, which doesn't necessarily mean horror or it doesn't mean that it has to be something terrifying. But I think that each of us as individuals, each of us as individual creatives have certain things that we are passionate about that we have lived through or that we see in the world um, that are broken, you know, that we feel that we are capable of meditating on and speaking to on behalf of everybody else. And we're not all going to be able to speak to the same issues, which is why we have so many books. But I think that there's a tendency in writers to try to overstate um, their wisdom or knowledge, you know, and you really don't have to know everything about everything to be a successful writer or to create a narrative in which the things that you do know about are coming through in a way that you that feels to the reader that the author has authority to write about them. So I think the big thing for me was kind of realizing what my lane was and being honest about that. And a lot of that, going back to the conversation about um, just being honest in the work, a lot of that involved looking at my own life and seeing the things that I had lived through and um, the things that I was able to bring to the forefront because I had firsthand experience with them. So I think that's why people say, write what you know. That's like a long-winded way of saying, write what you know. <laughs> gotcha. Well, what novels or nonfiction books have you read recently that you enjoyed? Ooh, um, I have really enjoyed Luster by Raven Leilani. Um, and I enjoyed that book because it's very short, but it really packs a punch. And it's very honest about... um just the traumas of living through your twenties as a millennial. And, um, I really like books that don't really pull punches. So that one was an enjoyable one. Um, I'm like kind of drawing a blank on what I've read recently. <laughs> That's um, fine. I'm, I've been doing a lot of reading of older works. Um, because I feel like, you know, there's a tendency to kind of read all the new stuff that's coming out. And I definitely buy a bunch of new books, but I've been going back and reading uh, Octavia Butler's older work and some of Toni Morrison's work just to kind of develop a, as, as rich as possible, an understanding of the work that has been done. Sure. sure. Um, as I read the work that is being done today. Well, where can people find you online if they'd like to learn more about you and your novel, The Taking of Jake Livingston? So my Twitter account is Ryan Douglas, at Ryan Douglas with two S's, W. Um, that is, well, I also have Instagram, but I never post. So Twitter <laughs> is kind of my main social media. My Instagram is Ryan underscore Souffle. S O U F L E E. So it's not spelled right. Um, 
<laughs> for whatever reason. But those are my two socials. That's great. Well, again, we've been speaking with Ryan Douglas, the author of The Taking of Jake Livingston. The novel is on sale now, so go buy a copy. And Ryan, thanks for doing this interview. Thank you so much. Great. Now, stay tuned for a brief excerpt from the audiobook of The Taking of Jake Livingston by Ryan Douglas, narrated by Kevin Free and Michael Crouch, available from PRH Audio wherever audiobooks are sold. I'd hate to be that kid who died in PE class. Stephen Woodbead never saw it coming. He was body-rolling to a trap song when the javelin hit his skull. He died on the spot, went splat in the grass with the javelin sticking out of his forehead like the sword of King Arthur. According to St. Clair lore, a few people were screaming, Look out! even as his hand unraveled like the legs of a dead crab and his portable speaker rolled slowly from his grip. Woodbead is dead, but I can still see him, bursting into light when the javelin lands. Stephen is deader than dead, and he died before I was even born. His P.E. uniform, white crop top and blue shorts, doesn't match the all-red uniforms we wear today and definitely wouldn't be considered normal by the Academy's current standards. Any dude wearing a shirt that doesn't cover his belly button would have their face shoved into an unflushed toilet. So, I assume Stephen died in the 80s. All I can see is the moment his soul split from his body. When his shirt knifed open and firecrackers burst like bees from his chest, his body dispersed in a siege of glowing embers, disintegrating into the air around the rugby post. There's this moment afterward when that spot is silent, and at first I wondered if that was his final loop, if Stephen had finally passed on. But then he pixelates back into shape, Short shorts to retro windbreaker. His smile is empty, his eyes are white, and he's dancing all over again. Jake! Grady's voice whistles through the air like a firework behind me. Wait up! Can't talk right now. Too busy watching Woodbead blow up, hoping he'll be done with that awful business soon. In the year I've been at this school, I've noticed his body parts slowly fading. Three fingers of his left hand have already dissolved, and his right leg ends just below the knee. The ancient brick castle of my school fades into view. We're passing the tennis courts and running toward the start line, where the wide steps lead back to campus. Turning the corner ahead of us are our top athletes, Chad Roberts and Laura Pearson, who, in their all-red uniforms, look like moving blood cells with pale appendages. Jake! Grady falls in line next to me, head all sweaty. Um, Earth to Jake? Oh. Hi, Grady. He's the only friend I have here, for better or worse. He's three inches shorter than me, with a white face and bushy orange hair. You trying to ditch me, man? I've been calling you for 20 minutes. Have you? You're always so damned zoned out. Our voices are pitched so differently. Mine is subdued and so quiet you can barely hear it. His is nasal and shrill, too loud to tune out. Our friendship never really settled in. 
it's actually a long-lasting accident, which started at the courtyard tables last year when he invited himself to sit next to me. I was reading. He asked me what I was reading. My solitude ended, and I've never gotten it back. A whistle shrieks from the field. Coach Kelly's got his blue eyes set on me. His neck is stiff, and the bill of his hat hides the top half of his face. He's pumping his arms in slow motion, pantomiming proper running. It's so condescending. I hate it here. Every time we run warm-up laps, it's like there's a black kid sign blinking above my head like a fire truck light, alerting the coaches of my whereabouts on the track. They are always keeping their eyes on me. Most days I want to run off this campus, find shelter in the woods, and spend a few years not being perceived, just to recover from the trauma of being hyper-visible. And most days, I can't figure out what I hate more, seeing the dead or being the one black 11th grader at St. Clair Prep.